Thursday I was reading my Bible and I was praying in Psalm 63. Psalm 63, 1 starts out, God, you are my God. I don't know how many times I've prayed Psalm 63 since I started praying the Psalms every day, but pretty frequently. And for some reason, those words really struck me uh, Thursday, struck by the magnitude of the statement. Praying, God, you are my God. And when you pray that, when you say that, what you're saying is there, there is a God. And that's pretty obvious. But since it's coming from the Bible, you're saying it is the God of the Bible. It's who we're praying to, who we're talking about. The God who speaks worlds into existence, who parts seas, rules over nations, deserves to have his glory proclaimed to the nations, his king over kings, lord over lords, will bring history to a close according to his will. Loves humanity so much he sent his only begotten son to die in our place. Lovingly draws rebellious humanity to himself. Saves all who repent and believe. Adopts those who repent and believe as his dearly loved children. Gives an inheritance to those he adopts. Wants to redeem the nations through Jesus and and so much more. Not only is there a God and and it's the God of the Bible, but this God is, is my God. I mean, that's what we're praying. God, you are my God. So if that God is, is my God, I mean, what kind of impact should a statement like that have upon my life, upon us, if we believe that, if we say that? So as I was thinking about it, I, I was thinking, well, I should repent for not constantly being awed by the magnitude of this truth. I mean, if I, I there should just be a, a, a constant awe in, in all those who would say the God of the Bible is my God. There should be an awe that the great and the awesome and the holy God looks down upon us with love and compassion and has saved us and has redeemed us and has done things. There should be repentance in our hearts for the fact that we're not constantly awed by that. There should be repentance for letting the reality of God being my God become a common thought. I mean, one of the things I realized as I prayed that is, I mean, that is, I mean, if somebody had said, do you believe in God? Well, sure, I believe in God. I mean, that wouldn't have been... A deep conversational point right off the bat. That was just a basic idea. And and it had become common to me that the God of the Bible is my God. And that should be something to be repented of. It should be a pleading for the fact that for God to enlarge this thought in my mind. To enlarge this thought in in my, my heart. Because if if the God of the Bible is the only God, and if He is God, and if He is my God... The impact it should have should be significant. And I should want God to enlarge that thought so much that my life, my thoughts, my desires, my attitudes, my actions, my reactions, my values, my priorities, my speech, my treatment of others, my my everything would testify of the fact that the great God of the Bible is my God. I mean, people, if I believe. The great God of the Bible is indeed my God. That should be visible in how I live my life. Not just in coming to church on Sundays, but in in every moment of every day in my life. And then I should pray for God to do these works in other people's lives as well. I think one reason this got such a hold of me on Thursday is because one of my constant prayers for our church for the last couple of years has been for God to, to put us in awe of Him. That we would be awed by God, that we would be awed by Jesus. 
There is such a need in our day for disciples of Jesus to take God seriously, to take Jesus seriously, not merely in words, but in the way we live our lives. My prayer for God to make us put us in all of him. It's one of the reasons we're studying Isaiah on Wednesday night and my prayer for God to put us in all of Jesus. One of the reasons we're studying the gospel of Mark on Sundays. These are great passages, great books that reveal the greatness of God, the greatness of Jesus. And if we can study those and and not be in awe of God, man, something, something is wrong. In many ways, being in awe of Jesus, it begins by understanding his absolute authority, which is what we're talking about today. So open God's word, if you have it, to Mark 1, verse 21 is where we're starting. We're going to read all the way to verse 34. Should be on page 761 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 1 and 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. After throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed and so debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere in the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, after they left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and they immediately spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she served them. Now when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and who were demon-possessed. The whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. The title of the message this morning is The Authority of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we praise you, we exalt you today. Father, we, we ask to be put in awe of the fact that, that there is a God. It is the God of the Bible and He is our God. Forgive us, O Lord, for letting that be a common thought. Forgive us, O Lord, for not living in, in just a continual sense of awe. The greatness of our God who has chosen us and has saved us and has given us a blessed hope. Guide us today as we study this passage. Let your spirit come, make it living and active in our hearts and in our lives. Let him reveal to us the deep things from it. Let your spirit take the word and smash any strongholds that have been erected and take thoughts captive in obedience of Christ. Let your spirit take the word and renew our minds and so transform our lives. Let him bring conviction where conviction is needed. Let him bring strength where strength is needed. Let him bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. Let your spirit take the word and use it to stir our faith. Create faith in those who do not yet believe in Jesus. 
Strengthen the faith of those who are already disciples of Christ. Have your way in all of our hearts and all of our lives. We invite you to search us and try us. See if there's anything in our lives displeasing to you and what there is. You show us. We'll repent of it. We'll forsake it. We'll let it go by the wayside. For you are greater and you are better than anything we may be holding on to in this life. Fill me with your spirit today. Let him anoint me to bring good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted. Let him send me to proclaim release to the captives and the receiving of sight to the blind. Let your spirit be upon me. Through the preaching of the word, captives could be set free. And we would understand the goodness and the greatness of our God. Have your way in all things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And we are going to spend two weeks in this passage. This week is just sort of an overview of the greatness of Jesus. And next week we'll dive into the details of the text. This passage is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we see people immediately stand up and take notice of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. They are astonished at the way he teaches. And they are astonished at the things he does. We too should be astonished by what we see from Jesus in this passage, and really in, in all of Mark as we'll go through it. We should be so astonished by what we read about Jesus, our lives and our minds and, and everything ought to be different because of it. When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we quickly see people were continually amazed at his power and his authority. He he taught with authority, we see in this passage, and we'll talk about that in a minute. He had authority to cast out demons, which we'll talk about next week. He had the authority to heal the sick, which we'll also talk about next week. He had the authority to perform great miracles, which we'll talk about continually throughout the book of Mark. He had authority over nature to calm storms, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Jesus just had absolute authority over all things. You read the Gospel of Mark and again all of the Gospels, you see there was and there is nothing in all of creation not under the absolute authority of Jesus. Now that's probably not a, diff- a new idea for most of us. But there is an implication in that. There is an implication that bears deep weight upon our lives. If Jesus has absolute authority over all things, that includes us. Jesus has absolute authority over our lives, just as he does over all other things. So our our truth for today, the absolute authority of Jesus over all things, it extends to our lives. There's a lot that this means, and there's a lot that would go into that, but today I just want to focus on two, two areas of impact that the authority of Jesus over our lives should have. First is, we should follow the teachings of Jesus. Follow the teachings of Jesus. We see in verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority. Now, teaching as one who had authority meant he did not appeal to other teachers of God's word as he taught and applied the law. The way typically the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders and scribes would teach is they would say, here's what this verse means, as is understood by the teachings of Rabbi 
so-and-so and rabbi this and rabbi that. And they would gather together all of these other rabbis that agreed with them. And they would say, "This my teaching is right because look at all of these people who agree with me. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus read what the law said. Jesus applied the law straight up. Just this is what it says. This is what it means. He, he taught as though his interpretation and application of God's law was the highest authority there was. He didn't have to appeal to anyone else to give, to give agreement to what he said because he said it. He had that kind of authority in his teaching, which, of course, he was the highest authority concerning the interpretation and application of God's word. When Jesus says it, it is absolutely true. It is absolutely right. It doesn't have to conform to anything anyone else has said. He doesn't have to conform to other scholars and religious leaders and theologians to be right. He is right. Other scholars and theologians and religious leaders, they must conform to him in order to be right. Jesus teaches and it's true. It's true whether it makes sense to us or not. It's true whether we understand it fully or not. It's true whether we like it or not. Jesus does not have to conform his teaching to our limited understanding of how the world works. Jesus does not have to conform his teaching to what makes us comfortable. Jesus does not have to conform his teaching to us in any way for him to be right. He's right. If we want to be right, we conform ourselves to him and his word. The absolute authority of Jesus extends to the interpretation and application of God's word. This means his testimony about God the Father is absolutely right. When Jesus tells us what God is like... Jesus is right, regardless of what anyone else may say. When Jesus talks about salvation, Jesus is right, regardless of what anyone else may say. When Jesus talks about eternity and judgment and other spiritual truths, Jesus is right, regardless of what anyone else may say. His testimony about spiritual things is superior to all other testimonies there ever have been, or there ever will be. And we get ask the question, why is Jesus' teaching and testimony superior to all others? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, Jesus testifies about what he has seen and heard. Who is a more reliable witness typically? Someone who sees the event, heard the things themselves, or someone who heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone who saw the event? As a, general, as a general rule, eyewitness accounts are better. They know what they saw and heard. If Judy sees something and passes it on to me, I could be where I'm not listening and miss something. I could misunderstand her, a word she uses. I could take what she said as she communicated it to me clearly and mess it up in one way or another. I could try to interpret what she said and say, well, she said this, but I think what she meant was that. There are all kinds of ways that hearsay can mess up the testimony, but the eyewitness is typically the proper and the best testimony about anything. Always or typically more reliable. When Jesus testifies about spiritual truths, he testifies as an eyewitness. Jesus is eternal. So when he testifies about creation, we can trust his testimony because he was there when it happened. Jesus testifies about what God the Father is like, we can trust His testimony because He knows God. 
He, is, he was with God until the moment he came to the earth. When Jesus testifies about heaven, we can trust his testimony because he lives there. When Jesus testifies about hell, we can trust his testimony because he has seen into hell. When Jesus testifies about the future, we can trust his testimony because he is omniscient and he has therefore seen the future. When Jesus testifies about salvation, we can trust his testimony because he himself is God's plan for salvation. Jesus never speculates about anything. Jesus never repeats hearsay. Jesus never gives his best guess. Jesus never figures it out. Jesus gives expert eyewitness firsthand testimony to everything he ever talks about. This makes his testimony more reliable than anything or anyone else on the earth. Jesus perfectly reveals spiritual truth. Jesus has authority in his teaching because he has firsthand knowledge of it all. Of course, the end result of that was we should confidently follow Jesus' teaching. We should confidently do what he says and live the way he says because he is teaching as an expert witness who knows everything that's right. Secondly, those who follow the teachings of Jesus experience the promises of Jesus. Have you ever had someone tell you a certain movie was great or a dish at a restaurant was good or an activity was fun? Only to find out with great sorrow they were wrong. When the movie was over, you wanted a refund on the life you felt was wasted while you sat in the movie theater. The food was so bad, you felt like it had been dropped in a kid litter box before it was dropped to you. The activity was so awful, you wondered if staying at home and smashing your toes with a ball-peen hammer would have been a better use of your time. This happens because people have different tastes than we do. It happens because some people just have bad taste. It happens because some people are just wrong. This never happens with Jesus. Those who follow Jesus' teaching, they discover he is telling the truth about everything he says. Those who follow Jesus' teaching discover everything he says will happen, will happen just as he said it would. Everything Jesus says comes true for those who believe Jesus and receive Jesus. Those who follow Jesus' teaching, they experience a peace which passes all understanding. Those who follow the teaching of Jesus, they experience the love of God in tangible ways. Those who follow the teachings of Jesus experience what it's like to walk with God and to know God as a friend. Those who follow the teachings of Jesus experience rest for their souls. Those who follow the teachings of Jesus experience freedom from Jesus. Those who follow the teachings of Jesus experience exceedingly abundantly above all they could ask or imagine. Those who follow Jesus and follow the teachings of Jesus, will always discover he was telling the truth about everything he said and everything he promised. Jesus never fails. Jesus never disappoints. Jesus never overpromises and underdelivers. Jesus so perfectly declares the word of God, the truths of God, it is impossible for him to overpromise and to underdeliver, if anything. I think it's greater than we can possibly imagine. We may have an idea of what a peace that passes all understanding means, but until we experience it, we don't know. We may have an idea of what it means to experience the love of God, but until we truly experience that, we really don't know. 
We may have an idea of what it means to find rest for our souls, but until we experience that, we truly don't know. And as great as we think these things are, the reality is far better. This enables us to confidently follow the teachings of Jesus because they will come true. They will come to pass. Everything he says is exactly right every single time. Of course, both of these issues, Jesus testifies about what he's seen and heard. Those who follow his teachings, experience the promises from Jesus, should influence how we live for Jesus and how we serve Jesus. We can share the gospel of Jesus with great confidence because It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We can share the gospel of Jesus with great confidence because God is working to draw people to Jesus as the gospel is shared. We can give people assurance and confidence in the promises of Jesus, give them hope in troubling times because of the word of God and what is said there because it will come to pass. We can confidently speak the truths that Jesus has said to us because we know they are absolute truth and they will not be contradicted. They will not be undone. They will not fail to come to pass. We can confidently do all the things Jesus has told us to do because they are always the right decisions in every moment of every time and every circumstance of life. Nothing Jesus has said is ever the wrong thing to do. May be countercultural, may go against our, our flesh, but it's always the right thing to do. The absolute authority of Jesus over all things, it extends to our lives. And if we say we believe that, if we say that's true, it needs to be seen in the fact that we follow the teachings of Jesus. Secondly, finally, The authority of Jesus extends to all things, even our lives. Then we must also embrace the salvation of Jesus. In this passage, Jesus reveals Jesus continually freeing people who are enslaved by Satan. And we'll we'll talk about that next week. I mean, it means what it says. These were people who were demonized and Jesus set them free. Jesus did something no one else could do, though. There were other groups before him. The religious leaders had tried to cast out demons. And they couldn't do it. But Jesus could. He could do what no one else could do. He could give them genuine, legitimate freedom from the enslaving effects of the enemy. The lesson for us is Jesus alone saves. Everything about salvation rises and falls on Jesus. This is the constant testimony of Scripture. You could look at Acts 4, 10 through 12, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5, 1 John 5, 11 through 12. One way or another, they all say the same thing. Only Jesus saves. There is no legitimate question to the fact God's Word teaches Jesus alone saves. So the question may be why? Why can Jesus alone bring salvation? No one else, nothing else, just Jesus. The answer to this lies in the problem of sin. The reason Jesus alone saves is because Jesus alone solves the problem of sin. We are all sinners. We are sinners by birth. We have a natural propensity to do what God has said not to do and to not do what God has said to do. There is something within all of us that if it says do not touch wet paint, we're going to touch it. We're going to do what people say not to do. We rebel against authority instinctively. That's sin. I mean, that, that is legitimately 
the full-on effect of sin in our DNA. But not only are we sinners by birth, we are sinners by choice. God has said some things thou shalt not do. And we have said, oh, I will. Ain't nobody going to tell me what I can't do. There are some things God has said we should do, and we have said, I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to. We have all chosen to sin. We have all fallen short, Romans says, of God's glorious standard. And the wage of this sin is death. Now the question may come is, well, what if I don't feel like a sinner? I mean, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. I certainly don't deserve death. I'm I'm basically a good person. People feel that way. People think that way because they don't understand sin. And they don't understand God's standard for righteousness. See, God's standard for righteousness is not like political correctness. It's not social acceptability. God's standard for righteousness is His law. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The basic idea of sin is living as though there is no law. There is no God-given law for our lives. Sin is a violation breaking God's law. Now, as it's meant there, the law is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments make up God's absolute standard of righteousness. Really, if you look, if we had time, which we don't, but if we had time, we could look at all Ten Commandments, and then we could look at every other command given in Scripture. And every other command, in one way or another, flows out of the Ten Commandments. You could even break it down into the two Jesus, the way Jesus breaks it down, right? To love the Lord our God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. If we love God as we should, we'll keep those first four. The last six deal with our relationship with one another. If we love people as we should, we'll keep those last six. So all the commands of God flow out of loving God, loving others. They flow out of the Ten Commandments in one way or another. So in order to be righteous... Apart from Jesus, we have to keep the law perfectly. But we have to keep it perfectly from birth to death. The law passed the grades on a pass or fail scale. You get 90%, you've still failed. When it comes to the law, you either pass with a 100% success or you completely fail. Even one minor violation of the Ten Commandments keeps you from being righteous, makes you A sinner. The size of the violation doesn't matter. It's the violation itself. Even one violation makes you guilty of sin and causes you to earn the wage of sin, which is death. Now, Romans 3, verses 19 and 20 tells us the better we know God's law, the more we realize we haven't kept God's law. For instance, the law says you shall not murder. Cursory examination of that seems pretty plain. I've never killed anybody. I've got it. I've done that one. I mean, almost 50. Got a record. 50 straight years, no killing people. I've kept that law perfectly. But, when we understand the spirit of the law as Jesus interprets it. Again, the interpretation of Jesus. Summit on the Mount. Jesus says that if we've ever been angry with someone without cause. If we've ever condemned someone in our anger. Or have treated someone with contempt. We have violated the spirit of the commandment. 
So it's, it's not merely, I've never murdered anyone. Check. Have I ever been unjustly angry with someone? Have I ever despised someone in my anger? Have I ever treated someone contemptuously in my anger? If the answer to that is yes. Then you've broken that commandment. Broken the spirit of that commandment. Now, of course, with that, what we realize quickly is God's standard is different from the world's standard. The world, especially right now, is pretty settled on the fact anger is typically okay. I mean, our, our, our world right now is just kind of an angry place. So venting your anger, I mean, short of killing people, but if you want to get mad and cuss people out, if you want to key their car or smash their windshield or cut their tires or punch them in the throat, the world by at large is like, eh, that wasn't so bad. That's not God's standard. God's standard is much, much higher than that. So when we treat someone with contempt, when we despise them, it's sin. And it makes us guilty before God and in desperate need of a Savior. Now, probably the greatest violation of God's command comes with the first four, the ones that deal with our relationship with God. Particularly the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Again, cursory examination makes that seem easy. Now, I've never worshipped Baal or Buddha or Allah or any of the thousands of Hindu gods. I, I mean, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in Free Will Baptist Church. I, I've never worshipped any other gods. So again, I, I've, I've kept this commandment. But we come to, again, the spirit of the law. What does it mean? And it means far more than not worshipping a pagan god. To, to have no other gods before Yahweh. It means that, that Yahweh has been the supreme object of devotion in our lives. Every moment of every day of our lives. Now this can't be just I, I say God is first in my life. It has to be lived in my life. God has to be first in, in my thoughts. I, I can't... Think on things that God has said I should not think on. And God has even told us how we're to think. Think on things that are right, true, good, pure, lovely, and of good report. If I've ever thought on things that didn't fit into that category, God wasn't first in my thoughts. God has to be first in my speech. God has told us how to talk. Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. So if there's ever been unwholesome speech that came out of my mouth for any reason, then God wasn't first that day in my mouth. And so I've violated God's law. I've sinned. It has to be seen in my priorities. Right? Every day, my top priority must have been to please Yahweh. To live for His glory. To do His will above all else. So if I've ever said, yes, I know the Bible says I should do this. But I want to do this instead. Then in that day, in that moment, I put something ahead of God. And He was not first in my life. The Bible talks about how we're to react to stressors. Like the Bible talks about turning the other cheek, loving those who hate us, doing good to those who despitefully use us and oppress us. So if someone has ever been mean to me and I responded in kind, God wasn't first in my reaction that day. And I have violated God's commandment. And this can't be like a day, right, where I've had just one perfect day. The sky was clear. The sun was shining. My hair was flawless. And I just did it all right on that day. It can't be that. I mean, it has to be every moment 
from the day we're born until the day we die, God was absolutely first in all things throughout my life. And if there's ever been a moment, even even a moment where I did something I knew God did not want me to do, I put something or someone over him. And I've sinned. And I've broken the commandment. And I'm guilty before God. And I need a Savior. Now, if we were to look at all ten commandments, we could see them each one play out in this way. The deeper we look into them, as Romans 3 says, the more we realize we have broken them. The more we realize we have sinned. In fact, Romans 3 goes so far as to tell us the purpose of this is to stop our mouths before God so that we would become guilty in His presence. Because the reality is, we all want to explain how good we are. I mean, that's just a a natural human thing. We're we're not that bad. We can always find somebody worse than us in one way or another. So we're, we're not that bad. But when we look at God's perfect standard of righteousness, we understand the spirit and the letter of the law, then our saying, look how good I am and I'm not that bad, it's just like, oof, oof, I am. I am a sinner. I have violated God's righteous law. I have lived as though there were no law. I've been a lawless person. And since we've sinned, we've earned the wage of sin, which is death. The eternal wrath of God will be poured out on us as the just judgment for our sin. And that's a, that's a terrifying thought. But there's good news. Jesus came to save us from the terrible wrath our sins earned. But this is why Jesus died. This, this is the most important aspect of his life. Jesus didn't die as an example of love. That's, that's a common thought in our day. Jesus just showed us what love was by dying. What did that accomplish? If Kelly and I are walking down the street and there's a car coming at 100 miles an hour, but we're off the road, we're out of the way, and this car's just going to fly by. And I tell her, Kelly, look how much I love you. And I jump out in the road and it runs over me and kills me. Was that love or was that just idiocy? It was just stupidity. It didn't accomplish anything. Now, if Kelly's in the path of the car... And I shove her out of the way and I get caught there and I run over, I get run over and die then. That was an act of love. See, if Jesus' death was just, didn't accomplish something definite and specific, it wasn't an act of love. It wasn't an example to follow. To just die for the sake of dying? That's no, there's nothing good there. But if his dying accomplished something definite, something specific, like say, taking our wrath, paying the penalty, our sins, have deserved. Well, that's what he did. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just dying. He wasn't dying as a martyr for the cause. He wasn't poor, pitiful Jesus. He made the wrong people angry and now they've killed him. Jesus' death isn't a picture of the injustice of man against man or how wicked the world can be or how bad the death penalty might be or, or any of the other things. People want to try to say it is today. Jesus' death was for one purpose. It was for your sin and mine. On the cross, He endured the punishment our sins deserved. The wrath of God was fully poured out upon Him on the cross. When Jesus prayed before He went to the cross, He prayed, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. What was the cup? It was the cup of God's wrath. 
We see in, in the Old Testament when the prophets would talk about the wrath of God, they would talk about the wrath of the wine of the, or the, the, the wine of the fierceness of the wrath of God. We saw that in Revelation. We went through that last year as well. What Jesus was saying was, there's no way for me to accomplish your will without drinking the fierceness of your wrath for all of humanity. Let that happen. But there was no other way, so he went to the cross and he drank in not just our sin, but our punishment. In essence, Jesus suffered hell on the cross in our place. He jumped in front of the car and pushed us out of the way. And he took our death and he gave us his life. He endured the wrath of God on the cross until he cried out, it is finished. And then he gave up his ghost. He laid down, he was taken off the cross, laid in the tomb, and he stayed there for three days, three nights. And then he rose from the dead. And then he offers salvation and eternal life. God offers it, but he only offers it through Jesus. Salvation is found in Jesus alone because only Jesus has dealt with our sin. Other religions and other philosophies and ideas, they may have an idea about how to deal with sin, but it's always an illusion. Be good enough is an illusion. You're not going to be good enough. I'm not going to be good enough. I mean, here's just the absolute reality of life. You will not have one day of your life where you are good enough to earn one moment of God's grace or mercy, and neither will I. On our best day, we're sinners. On our best day, our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's our best apart from Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. Only Jesus has taken our wrath. Only Jesus has offered salvation. Now you say, okay, I get that. But what does that have to do with the authority of Jesus? Well, look at verse 15. Jesus came, or 14, preaching the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now, this is interesting, right? Jesus, man, he didn't say like, would you like to raise your hand and maybe if you're interested? He didn't ask. This is a command. He goes preaching the gospel and his command to the people listening is repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Same thing today. Jesus, his his gospel goes out and with it the necessary command to repent. You and I, we are here today under the authority of Jesus and he is commanding us to repent and believe the gospel. That is the command of Jesus Christ. Now, we probably don't think of these as commands, and yet they are. In fact, the book of Acts says, God right now commands everyone everywhere to repent. Those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior at this moment right now today are being commanded by Jesus through His Word to repent of their sins and believe the Gospel. Those of us that have repented of our sins and believe the Gospel... We are also being commanded to repent of our sins and believe the gospel because in one way or another we have fallen short and we need to re-believe the gospel again so we can live for Jesus as we should. The command always goes out. Repent and believe the gospel. And this command must be obeyed. The authority of Jesus over all things that extends to our lives. 
So we must submit to His command, embrace His salvation, and repent and believe. And repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance starts by recognizing God is right, we are wrong. God is right about our sin. God is right that our sin is against Him. God is right our sin is serious. God is right our sin makes us guilty. In the courts of heaven, God is right our sin makes us earn the wage of death. Our sin keeps us out of heaven. God says all of those things in His Word. Repentance is believing God. And not believing ourselves because we've told ourselves a different story. Repentance then leads us to turn from our sin and turn to God. Seeking forgiveness based upon the death, the resurrection of Jesus. In repentance we, we turn, we renounce our former way of life, the sinful way of life. So that we can embrace Jesus. There's no repentance without turning. There's no repentance without renouncing and embracing Christ. Now, repentance is ultimately fueled by our faith in Jesus. Repent, believe the gospel. Believe is not meant in a general way. It's not enough to say, I believe in God. I believe in God is not a statement that will save not a single person on the planet. People will die every day and go straight to hell, and they believed in God. Belief in God is not enough. It's not even enough to say there is a Jesus who lived and he was real. What we have to believe is very specific and very narrow. It is in Jesus. His life was sinless. His death, it was for me. His resurrection, it really happened. But not only do we have to believe He lived perfectly, He died sacrificially, He rose victoriously, we have to believe that's the only hope for salvation we have. And this is where belief the gospel, this is where it gets into accosting our pride. We are a very prideful people. We'll pull ourselves by our own bootstraps. We're self-made men and women. We did it. Well, if we do it, we're going to hell. That's just the reality. There is nothing you or I can do to earn our salvation. We don't add to it. We don't do anything. All we add to salvation is the sin that makes the salvation necessary. Jesus saves us. His death paid the penalty for our sins. He is the one who lifts us up and snatches us from the flame of fire. He is the one who pours out the Spirit upon us and causes us to be born again. He, he does it. All we do is believe. And that Jesus is the only reason, the only hope I have. That's what believing the gospel is. It's not saying, oh yeah, I believe Jesus was real. I believe in God. It's not enough. It has to be a belief that His death was for me. His death was for you. His death is sufficient and is the only hope I have for my salvation. And what that means is there has to be a, a letting go of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And again, those are, those are hard. We are all by nature self-righteous. And we are all by nature self-sufficient, particularly when it comes to salvation type things. We don't want to believe we're not enough as we are. We don't want to believe we can't do it on our own, but we can't. And if we're to be saved, we must believe that Jesus alone saves us. Not, by, not because of our good works, not by our good works, not through our good works. Because of His death, His resurrection, His paying the penalty for our sins. But then we also have to follow Jesus. 
Repenting and believing the gospel always leads to follow Jesus. We'll see this as we go through the gospel of Mark. We see it in the command, the call of Jesus. Repent, believe the gospel, follow me. Those who repent and believe Jesus, they always follow him. Those who don't follow Jesus did not repent, did not believe. So it's not a matter of I follow Jesus to be saved, but if I've repented, if I've believed, if I've been saved, the natural result of that will be I follow Jesus. And where those three elements don't exist, there's been no repentance in my life. There's no believing fully and completely on the cross and on Jesus and the gospel. And if there's no following Jesus in my life, the reality is I'm not saved. So the question before us this morning is, have we repented? Have we believed? Have we followed Jesus? Today he commands us. Again, his, even his call to follow him, it, it's not a will you follow me. It's a command. He goes to them and he says, you follow me. And they have a choice to make. They can follow or not follow, but that's it. They can repent or not repent. They can believe or not repent. And and that's still the, the choices that are before us. All of us this morning are commanded, repent, believe, and follow. And how we respond is up to us. I mean, these are individual choices. No one can repent for you. No one can repent for me. No one can believe for you. No one can believe for me. No one can follow Jesus in your place. No one can follow Jesus in my place. We all have to do it individually on our own. And if you've never repented, and if you've never believed, and if you're not following Jesus, submit to the authority of Jesus because it extends to your life. His command to you this morning is repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. And follow me. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to ask you to stand as well.